but why is it so hard to see mission as the very essential center of who we are? Why do we make mission something we do as opposed to something we are, that is something inherent to us as being the church? The reason I want to provide for you this morning, and again, if you don't agree with me, that's fine. I just want to make sure you hear me, and you can talk to me in the corner, and we'll have a great debate. I'll love it. But the reason that we struggle as a church to truly be who we are as the church is because we have adopted wrong stories that have, in a sense, dictated and determined how we actually function, how we structure ourselves. And so if we are actually going to posture, and I think I can do this here. I have on the slide here. I just got my fun little tool here. It is on. There we go. If we're going to posture ourselves to be missionaries together in our everyday life, we must adopt the biblical story as our controlling story. Because stories matter. Story of, the story of God is not just an app on your phone. It's actually the operating system of your phone. What I mean by that is, in the circles I run in, the story of God is a way to introduce people who don't know Jesus to Jesus. Is it a great way to do it? I think it's the best way. The story of God is like a neat theological tidbit that, you know, the theological geeks like me like to run through and know, we know that, no. The story of God is not something ancillary. It is something that is at the very heart and centrality of the Christian faith. And so it's a story that we actually adopt in our minds and in our hearts dictates everything. Because, as Eldisar McIntyre says, I can only answer the question, what I am to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself apart See, the only way you can make sense of your life is through a narrative, through the sense of a story. If you don't have some overarching story to actually determine who you are, you are lost. And there are all sorts of stories that are out there bombarding us. Okay, and I'm not gonna, I'm just gonna mention these, and you know them. The story of individualism, the story of consumerism the stories of the red political circles and the blue political circles, the stories of nationalism. We can just walk through in our culture all the different narratives that people band together around. And those stories are actually determining who they are. And we would be foolish, I mean, just absolutely foolish to think that those stories have not infiltrated and affected the church. We'd be absolutely naive to think that individualism, consumerism, and the red and the blue and the nationalism and all those stories are not affecting the way I live. It is. And you can't, in a sense, deny that. Because if the biblical story is not the one that is really controlling our thinking, we as the church will inevitably be swept into the story that the world is telling about itself. 
and we will increasingly become indistinguishable from the world in which we find ourselves. And that is what the church is doing. We are slowly becoming indistinguishable from the culture of which we are a part. And yet I think there's great hope. God is doing something. God is waking the church up. God is, I don't know about Denver, but in my area and what I see in the interactions that I have, God is doing something special. I don't know if it's going to be a third great awakening. I don't know. I'm not prophesying or predicting anything. But with the post-Christian and all the things going on, people are now just having to wake up and ask, do I believe what's happening? Do I believe what the scriptures are telling us? And all this is true because what I want to just share with you just quickly is this, is that stories determine identity and identities determine mission. So if you're a parent, I'm a parent, and I do the mission thing with my kids, stop doing this, do that. It's all action, right? And when I do that, why do they obey me? Just so they don't get in trouble. I don't take their AirPods away. Okay? I don't get your generation, you kids. You just walk around with an AirPod all day. Like, and I talk to my kids, and they have the, I'm like, are you there? Right? You know, and so it's like, if I don't tell my kids a better story than the story that they are getting indoctrinated with every single day, I'm not doing anything. And if the church wants to have right mission, this is like what I always, people always ask me to come and speak, teach us how to do mission. I'm like, I can't until we actually go back and understand what story are you actually living out of? Because here's what I want to say. We can have like this big, you ever like told someone 15 times something and they just don't get it? You know why? It's because they have this overarching story that they're trying to push all of this information through and it doesn't filter right because they're filtering everything through the lens of their story. And if the church could adopt and come back to a true, what I want to call biblical story, I think we would be a lot better off. And what I want to say is that there are three categories. There's the biblical story, there are sub-biblical stories, and there are unbiblical stories. Okay, so when I make those distinctions, it's easy just to be very polarizing and say, this is the right story and that's the wrong story. But to some degree, we all have sub-biblical stories. Does that make sense? None of us have perfectly adopted and live out and understand perfectly the true story. And what I see with the church is not so much unbiblical stories as what I want to call sub-biblical. If the church does not know the story of God, then how can they take up their role in it? How can the church, if they don't know what time it is in God's unfolding drama, how will they know what they're supposed to be doing? Let me give you some examples. If you were uh, an actor and you're given a role to play, okay, and there's like a drama, a play going on up here, and in, in, in the second, at the end of the second act, the main character got sick and we needed to fill someone in and we just went out to the street and pulled someone in and said, you play this part. 
but he didn't know anything that went on before. He doesn't know how the story ends. If we just had to come up here and play that part, how well would he do? I think he would completely embarrass himself, the director of the play. And I often wonder if this is the present situation in the church, who in sincere zeal for the gospel are just making a mockery of themselves in the church. Take another example. I'm a Lord of the Rings freak. Any other J.R. Tolkien out here? Um, Juan Pena gave me the 30-minute Leaf of Neagle diagram story. I love that painting out there. Love the story of Leaf of Neagle. But I think the church is really good. At, if you're not familiar with the Lord of the Rings, there's three volumes, right? The, the Fellowship, the Two Towers, and the Return of the King. And, and as the church, we're really good at pulling out that middle volume, the Two Towers. I'm just going to call that the Gospels in Paul. All right, we pull out that, and we, we exegete that book. We memorize that book. We study that book. We know everything about that. We know where to go when, when this story happens, what chapter it's in, right? We know all that. But how well would you do understanding that book, really, if you didn't have the fellowship or the return? How many things would you misunderstand? How many ways would you be like what is that ring what is a hobbit and so the church what i want to say because we don't know our story has adopted a story like just taking out jesus and coming out with this story something like this now this may not be very fair but i'm speaking so Here's the present church's story. God made the world in six days. That means evolution is wrong and evil, of course. And if you don't believe in six days, you don't believe the rest of the Bible to be true. Three minutes later, Adam and Eve rejected and rebelled against God and sent everyone far away from God. We are all sinners because of Adam and Eve's sin. It's, it's passed on. The indwelling sin of original sin is now passed on to all of us. And then we skip Genesis 4 to Malachi 4 because we have no idea what to do. <laughs> and we come straight to Jesus. And we say, Jesus came to die on the cross to take care of my sin so that if I put my faith in him, I will get to go be with him up in heaven forever and all of those who don't spend eternity in hell. That's the story. That the present church, I believe, to some degree holds on to. That may seem harsh. It may seem wrong of me to say that. But what I want to say is there's lots of true elements in what I just said. Does that make sense? But when you don't have the right story to put all the pieces together, all those truths beget, become distorted. And I, I do this a lot with people, and they often get defensive with me because they've been Christians for a thousand years, and they're like, you, what do you mean everything I know is wrong? What, blah, blah, you know, and they get really defensive. And so I, I, it was hard for me to, like, get through with these people until I decided to... Um, 
ask them this question. There it is right here. Where are the streets of gold located? Now, this is not what you think, but where do 99.9% .9 of people believe the streets of gold are located? Heaven. I, I live in Chesapeake and in Virginia Beach area, Virginia Beach, and um, Pat Robertson, 700 Club, he has a college there too, and it's Regent, and one of my friends teaches there, and he asked me to teach for them for a couple weeks over there, and I have a room full of like 300 seniors in college, and I'm teaching them the Bible, and I have this very slide for them, and I asked them, how many of you think the streets of gold are heaven? Everyone raised their hands. I said, I don't, I, I don't believe that. I said, anyone have any other ideas? And, of course, you get the smart aleck, land of Oz, and all that fun stuff. But the streets of gold are not located in heaven. And this is not just some incidental biblical trivia question. How you answer this question reveals a lot about how you view God's story. Because, let me just say it simply, if you get the end of the story wrong... Guess what you also get wrong? The beginning, because in every movie, the introduction actually leads and takes you all the way to the conclusion, right? So that in the beginning, in Genesis 1 and 2, are all in seed form, everything that takes place in Revelation 21 and 22. It's all there, and it's just unfolding. So if you get the end of the story wrong, you get what? The beginning wrong. And what I'm going to say is if you don't get the middle, uh, sorry, you're going to get the middle wrong too. Let's just leave it there. <laughs> this is how all good coherent narratives work. The introduction, the rise, or sorry, the introduction, the client, or I, I'm, I'm going to leave the plot line alone because I'm <laughs> not going to deal with it right now. But how the narrative works, all works together, that if you don't have the bookends right, you're going to get the middle wrong. And I think that's what the church has done. The overwhelming answer is that Ameri in American evangelicalism that we believe and are striving for is how to get up to be with God. But what if I told you the story of the Bible is not so much how we can go up to be with God as it is how God can come down to be with us. That's a totally different way of looking at the story. So what is this story? I'm going to take a few minutes and just walk through the story, and then I'm going to tell you how that impacts our reading in Philippians chapter 2 in 13 minutes and 50 seconds. Before God created the world, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit lived in perfect love, life, and light together. God the Father and God the Son expressed their love of mutually receiving and giving love to each other through the means of the Holy Spirit. And in that relationship was the perfect life. Life that is truly life was the life that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit had. This is why Jesus prays in John 17, restore back to me the relationship, the glory I had with you before the beginning of the world. And all of this love, life, and light began to overfill, it began to overflow out of God. And out of God's overflow, he made an earth and he wanted to share his love, life, and light with a creation. And so he, he in six days, whatever you mean by that, created the worlds. 
And so this community of Father, Son, and Spirit went on mission to create a universe, a world that he could live and inhabit and to share that love, life, and light with. And he created a missional community called Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were the first community that God gave a mission to. And that mission was to get the earth ready for the arrival of the king. If you ever watch movies like Troy and the Ancient Kingdoms, when a king would claim a new territory, what would he do? He would not go move there right away. He would send all of his builders and architects and everyone in there to build the kingdom, the palace. And when the walls were built and everything was ready to be inhabited, they would inform the king and everyone would come out of the, the kingdom. And the king would be the first one to walk into his palace and his kingdom and everyone else would follow him in. And this is the picture we get in Genesis 1 and 2 of Adam and Eve. They were to prepare the earth for God's arrival. And when it was ready, 1 Thessalonians 4, when the sun comes out of heaven, we will be following him and ushering him into his kingdom. And so Adam and Eve were given this mission. But... Next, the second arrow, I, if you want me to explain, I should do that. The arrow coming up is God creating something out of nothing. The second symbol there of the axe is the rebellion. It's not a fall. They weren't on a walk and stepped into a ditch. They willfully said, you will not be my God. I will be my own God. And we know that that rebellion sent all of creation into a tailspin. And that sent us as humans to be separated from God because of our sin. And because he is holy and right, he cannot be in the presence of evil and sin. And so God's project to come and dwell with us has been now hampered because his world that he made is now marred by evil and injustice and wickedness. But there's more to the rebellion that we often forget. And here's where the story we need to come in and ask, why did the serpent actually want to come in and sneak in and tempt them? Was he like, I just want to get them to sin and then I can laugh at God and be like, ha ha, I told you they didn't love you. I mean, partly. But you just look at anyone here, comic book movies, lovers. My kids love all these Marvel things. And I'm just like, how bored are we as Americans? I'm going to leave that alone. But, like, I'm going to use an illustration. Like, Batman and Joker. Go back to the original, the good one, Michael Keaton, right? <laughs> why, did, why did Joker want to come into the story? What was he trying to do? Just try to laugh at Batman and say, ha-ha, I won this one? No, he was trying to take over Gotham, wasn't he? Be the ruler of Gotham? Do you know why the serpent snuck into the garden? Because he wanted to take over God's world. God had given rulership and authority to Adam. And in order to take rulership and authority from the world, he has to go beat the present king. And the way he does that is through getting him to be deceived and rebel against God. And in that rebellion, now we have a new God of this age. You ever heard of that in the New Testament? So in Genesis 3, we have a story where God's good world is now being ruled by his arch enemy. And he is flooding his world, Adam's world, which is now ruled by Satan. He's flooding it with his identity. And we see that day in and day out. Till we come to the third arrow, which is an arrow moving from left to right, that this is how God is going to move his story forward. But it's also pointing you to the fourth arrow there, the fourth symbol of Jesus, what God does is he chooses 
a nation to be the means by which the serpent would be kicked out and through which his, prom- his purposes would actually come to be. And I don't have a long enough time to talk with you about Israel, but if you just go to Exodus 19 later, God told Israel, this is who you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be a special chosen people, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. Now, when I tell my kids what they're supposed to do, do I tell them who they are? No, I say do this. God doesn't give, in, when God's giving his mission statement to Israel, he tells them not what to do, but who they are. Why? Because if you understand who you are and what story you're brought up in, you'll know what to do. God said, you're my special treasured possession. I own all the earth, but you, I've chosen you. And in Deuteronomy 11, it says, don't think you're special. You know why I chose you, Israel? Not because you're the greatest, you're the smallest. Not because you're the most powerful, you're the weakest. You know why I chose you? Just because I chose you. And you're going to be my vehicle by which all the nations are going to come to know me and I'm going to be able to come and dwell with my people. And that's what it means to be a kingdom of priests. It says in the Old Testament, the people of God had to go to a priest to be and to know God in this way. Does that make sense? Remember that story of the priesthood? Well, God says as a nation... You're going to be a priest. All the nations are going to come to me through you. And so this is Israel's assignment. And how would they do that? Through being a holy nation, by being separate, by obeying the law of God. And as you follow Israel's story, you know, it's like this up and down, up and down, up and down until you get to the highest climax in, in, in the Old Testament of the David and Solomon era. And then Solomon rebels because of his... Uh, wives and idols and all the other things and the nation split in two and the northern kingdom is taken into captivity by a nation called Assyria and they're kind of like fizzled out and the southern kingdom Judah sticks around for about another 140 years before uh, um, a guy with a long weird name Nebuchadnezzar comes and destroys Jerusalem takes everyone to Babylon like if you're following the story like God what are you doing you chose us, and now there's no one in our land. It's almost as if God is saying, if you're not going to be a light to the nations, I'm going to send you to the nations. And you have the lights of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and Ezra and Nehemiah and these stories that take place in there. But as you look at the end of the Old Testament and all these prophets, the prophets have two messages, one, restoration, and two, judgment. We know the stories of judgment. You're evil, you're wicked, you're idolatrous, so we're going to punish you, right? But then there's the promise that God is going to restore them. And let me ask you this. What does it mean that God is going to restore Israel? What I want you to know is that I think God is saying, I'm going to restore not just your identity, who you are. I'm not just going to bring you back to me, but I'm going to bring you back to me and your identity so that you can finally become who you were always supposed to be. Restoration includes mission. He's restoring them back to being a kingdom of priests, a people who they were always supposed to be. God's not just bringing them back to a land to throw them a party. God's going to restore them back to himself so they can actually finally become a kingdom of priests. But why couldn't Israel ever become a true kingdom of priests? God's people could never be God's people because the powers of sin, Satan, and death were too strong. Satan and his 
lies and, and the power of sin isn't just something you do, it's a power. And you don't think it's a power just this afternoon for the next three hours after the gathering, practice the golden rule. Try to love your wife the way you want her to love you for five hours straight. And you know what you'll learn? Sin's a power. And so in order for God's people to become what God always wanted them to be, the powers of sin, Satan, and death had to be dealt with. So into the story steps Jesus. And quickly, as we look through the, the narrative of Jesus, we're going to go straight to the crucifixion. Why did Jesus die? Yes, to deal with my sin. But you know what else he died for? To deal with the powers of Satan and death. So the world that Adam was given and he lost and forfeited that is now being ruled by the God of this world, the death of Jesus is dealing with that. He's bringing that world to an end. And when Jesus walks out of the grave, it's not just like, hey, good job. I'm satisfied that you died for everyone's sin. When he walked out of the grave, he actually brought a brand new world. And these two worlds right now coexist. We call it the overlap of the ages. That Satan's world is now coming to an end in the sense that Jesus on the cross stabbed him with a sword so deep in his gut that no doctor, no medic can help him. He's bleeding out and he just has moments before he dies. 1 John 2 says that that darkness is coming to an end and the new light is already dawning and the new world that God is gonna come and dwell with his people. Jesus walked out of the grave and began it and he launched it. This is when the church finally enters into the story. So the question is, what role does the church have? And I wanna say, for me, the church is called to be witnesses together of the new world in the midst of the old world. This is our role. We are called to actually embody in our life together what the new world will look like. And we are sent to the nations. And it's interesting, through Jesus, Peter now calls the church what? A chosen people, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. Through Jesus, the church becomes the people that God has always intended his people to be. Missionaries to make his name known throughout the world. And now Jesus, through him, is bringing God's purposes to a conclusion in which the end of the story is... Oh, sorry. The arrows for the church going both ways. The church looks back to what the cross and resurrection did and radiates that out to the world. The final arrow is coming down together is the story in Revelation 21. Any people of Stranger Things fans here? There's new, my kids informed me that a new one's coming out in May, right? A couple weeks sometime. The two dimensions in the Stranger Things, the upside down in the normal world, we live in a world of two dimensions. God is in the heavens, the heavenly dimension. That's where he rules and that's where he reigns. And it's like a veil. It's right there behind us, but we can't quite see it, but it's there. 
and we live in the physical world. But God's intent was always for those two dimensions to become one, to become married. And this is the picture of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven to earth and the two heaven and earth becoming one reality so that the love, the life, and the light of God that would always, it was always his intention to have on the earth, he's coming to dwell with his people and the earth will be flooded with the love and the life of God. This is the story. And how much better is that than pray a prayer, live life for a couple of days and don't know what to do now until you go to heaven. Floating on a cloud, playing a harp, thinking this church service is like this one forever. But it sure beats the alternative, so I'll just be happy. And so when we adopt that story in 20 seconds in Philippians chapter 2, it changes things. See, let me just read it for you again. Philippians chapter 2, Paul says this, Therefore, as my dear friends, if you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you both to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. See, when we adopt a sub-biblical story, of the one that I told you before the church regularly adopts, we look at this passage and how do we interpret it? Well, first of all, we get a little nervous with this passage as Protestants, don't we? Paul says, work out. Uh-oh, works and salvation in the same sentence? What does that mean? I thought I was saved by grace through faith and by no works, all of Jesus' works. And so we thankfully say, well, good thing Paul said work out, not work for. <laughs> right? And so then we're like, what does work out mean? If I could summarize it meanly, it means be a good Christian. Go to church, pray, make sure you're in the faith, make sure you're obeying, make sure that I'm doing all the right things as a Christian. Examine yourself, right? Is this, tr is this where, if you've ever heard this passage preached before, is this like what? People are saying all the time, this is all my part. Work really hard to show that you're a Christian. Work really hard to show that you love Jesus. And then you have God's part, for it's God who works in you. And so a good reformed person would say, if you don't know what that means, you're blessed, way more blessed than me, okay? But a good reformed person would be like, yeah, you work as hard as you can, but you know at the end of the day, who's the one who's uh, uh, giving you all the ability to work? God is, right? So you can't take any credit. All the credit goes to God because he's the one working in you. Does that make sense, like how they interpret that passage? Why? Because we've adopted a story that the Bible is all about who? Me. And it's all about my salvation. Make sure that you are a good Christian. Now, let me make one small caveat. I do believe you have individual responsibility before God. Okay, I said it. Paul does care about your salvation. I do care about your salvation. But that's just not what Paul's after in this passage. What is Paul after? What I would just say as quickly as this is that what Paul is getting after Sorry, that's, that's like size two font. So I'll just read it for you. What if we interpret this phrase, work out your salvation this way? 
work out what it means to be God's saved people. Work out what it means to be God's saved people in Philippi. What difference does that make? All of a sudden, it's not about focusing in on me and my relationship with God, make sure everything I'm doing is right. It's about community. Work out together what it means to be God's saved people. So rather than looking at Philippians chapter 2 in an individual salvation lens, when you get the story of God coming into your interpretation process, you see that Paul is concerned that the church in Philippi continue to live out being a community on mission, and they are to work it out together what it means to be God's saved people. Which is interesting, because if I was Paul, I'd be like, do this, do this, do this, do this. I would actually have written a church planning playbook. We got those abounding in the Christian world. Here's your playbook. Here's how you do it. Here's what you do first, second, third, fourth. Paul's like, no, you work it out. You figure out what it means to be God's saved people. So I thought to myself, I came here to tell you how to do things, and I'm not going to tell you how to do things. Because the Spirit of God is in you, and he lives with you, and it's going to give you the means to figure out how to reach Denver, because I want you to know how you reach Denver is way different than how you reach Chesapeake, Virginia. And I gave you all kinds of cool stories, well, three, about how God works in Chesapeake. And then you try to do that here, and we'd just be going against the entire corpus of what Paul wrote. He's like, I'm not telling you how to do it because what it looks like to be a Christian in Philippi is different than what it looks like in Corinth. You're dealing with different stories and different gods and different idols and different situations and different contexts. So Paul says, you work out what it means to be God's saved people. And we don't like that. We want the checklist. You know why you want a checklist? It's because some other story is really dominating your life and a checklist just enables you to think you're a Christian in light of that overarching story. Not to be mean, but that's true. But does that mean there's no guardrails? You ever take a kid bowling and they put up the bumper things? This is why Paul says do it with fear and trembling. You can't do whatever you want. You can't just do willy-nilly. Let me just give you two things, how Paul guards the church. Number one, there's a Jesus, Jesus ethic. If you're in Philippians chapter two, the Jesus ethic comes out in the very first few verses. As I open my Bible here, Philippians chapter two, Paul lays down a command that we're all very familiar with, but really all it is is the ethic of Jesus. As you're working out what it means to be God's saved people, you are to look after the interests of others ahead of yourself, right? Just be loving. There's an ethic, like the Christian New Covenant ethic is a guardrail that we live according to that ethic, not just so we can have our nice sleep at night, we don't feel guilty or proud that we obeyed it or guilty that we did. We have an ethic because that ethic actually is the mission. We are showing Jesus to the world by the way we live. 
the new creation is going to be a world where everyone looks out for other people and everyone's going to look out for you. That's hard to believe, isn't it? We're called out to do that right now. But there's also not only the Jesus ethic, but there's the Jesus story, the Jesus narrative. And he gives that in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And this is an early church hymn that Paul is making. One theologian calls it the master story. Who says this, Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather made himself nothing, took on the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance of man, he humbled himself, even becoming obedient to death on a cross. And now God has exalted him to the highest place. He's the king of kings. He's given a name that's above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue Acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, not Caesar, to the glory of God the Father. So what I would encourage you, oh, I thought I had one more slide, but I guess I don't. Um, I just had three final points, and I cut out a lot of my sermon, aren't you happy? What I would encourage you to do is, number one, locate yourselves in the missional drama such that it becomes the way you view the world. Allow the story of God to continue to shape you, to continue to press into the story, to continue to learn it more so it becomes how you actually view the world. Two, ground your life together in loving unity such that we model the new creation in our relationships. And three, work together in the guidance of the Spirit to figure out how to be God's saved people in Denver. There is a story that controls your life through which you view everything. And God gave us the scriptures to be a unified story so that it would actually shape his people. And the more faithfully we learn to adopt that story, the more faithful we'll be as witnesses and missionaries together. Father, thank you for your story. It just fills our hearts with joy to know that one day you're coming to be with us, to dwell with us, that we will share in your love, in your life, in your light. So help these people, help the people in Chesapeake, where I get to live and be a part of, help us both to work out what it means to be God's saved people. For the fame of Jesus, not ours for the advancement of Jesus' kingdom and not providence and not cross-purpose and not redemption. And keep us faithful until we actually see the risen king and get on our knees and declare you are, Jesus, the Lord of the earth. We ask these things in his name. Amen.